Grace, mercy, and peace be multiplied unto you by God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Quoting an opponent out of context is an informal fallacy in the ugly underbelly of politics in our life. Alan Grayson, a former United States representative from Florida during a re-election campaign, played on his opponent's military record. Daniel Webster, his opponent, held a student deferment and a draft classification of medically unfit for service. Grayson turned that into a draft dodger and nicknamed him Taliban Dan. Grayson's advertising campaign warned viewers that religious fanatics are trying to take away our freedom in Afghanistan, in Iran, and right here in central Florida. Thankfully, such nonsense did not carry the day. Correcting the fallacy and putting information back into its proper context can be illuminating. Consider our epistle reading for this morning from Romans chapter 8. The lectionary committee has placed it between Ezekiel 37 and John 11, between the Valley of Dry Bones and Lazarus's tomb. The images and descriptors in both reinforce the reality of death. Ezekiel recalls that he, that is Yahweh, brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. Very, very dry. No life, hardly the memory of life. John reinforces the same point in his description. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. Four days, an allusion to the Jewish myth that the spirit of the dead hovered around the corpse for three days. Lazarus's spirit had clearly exceeded that time limit. These were really, really dead people. And to both, it is the wind, the breath, the word that brings life. It is the spirit, capital S, that gives light. It is into this context that the lectionary committee placed Romans 8. That opens with Paul's triumphal, therefore now. Middendorf refers to this opening four verses of our text as Paul's greatest hinge. In other words, here is the most context-critical move in Paul's argument. What goes before necessarily leads to requires what comes afterwards. And what goes before? Well, the short answer is Romans 7, verses 1 to 6. There, Paul opens by demonstrating that the law remains binding until death. For example, a married woman who has relations with another man is an adulteress unless her husband is dead. From this illustration, he draws the application. You also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Therefore, you are released from the law. You were, you are dead. Really, really dead. But how? Well, back up another chapter, again to verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. That death is the correct context is reinforced by this morning's text when Paul writes, speaks of the law of sin and death. The formula of Concord drives home the point. First, a bit of background. The formula was written at a time of controversy in the Lutheran branch of the Reformation. 
Some were teaching that human beings retained some natural power, that they could prepare themselves for and or participate in grace. And the clear response, the reformers declare that in spiritual and divine matters, the mind, heart, and will of the unreborn human being can in absolutely no way, on the basis of its own natural powers, understand, believe, accept, consider, will, begin, accomplish, do, effect, or cooperate. Instead, it is completely dead to the good, completely corrupt. This means that in human nature, after the fall and before rebirth, there is not a spark of spiritual power left or present with which human beings can prepare themselves for the grace of God or accept grace as it is offered. Close quote. You and I were dead, really dead. Dead as the valley of dry bones or the corpse in Lazarus's tomb. To be made alive would require something, someone outside of ourselves. You guessed it, but God. But God is probably the best two words of the whole Bible. But what are God's actions in this morning's text? He pronounces judgment. And it's not a judgment of acquittal, but of condemnation. To be fair, verses 3 and 4 in the original are one long convoluted sentence, 46 words long. The syntax is complex, and remember, in Koine Greek, word matters nothing. Our ESV goes a long way to smooth things out, but to distill it down to the core sentence, all you need are the second, the 13th, and the words 25th through 30th words. For God condemned sin in the flesh. Sounds bad, doesn't it? We were already acknowledged sinners subject to the law of sin and death. Will God kill us again? Pronounce sentence on us? We're already dead in trespasses and sins. No. In the flesh is not our flesh, but Christ's flesh, the sinless, perfect flesh of God incarnate. We need to reinsert that wonderful gospel clause found immediately before condemnation in the original by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus, the very son of God, took on flesh. Here stands a powerful Christological statement that some would question. Likeness? What does Paul mean to say? What does he point to? Docetism would argue that Jesus only appears to be human. But without the flesh of Mary, there can be no sacrifice. Unless Jesus was truly human, he could not die for our sin. Others would stress that likeness implies that Jesus was not identical to us, particularly with regard to sin. As we confessed, we are fallen sinners. Jesus was not. But that can't be Paul's meaning because it is precisely as fallen sinners that you and I need salvation. Indeed, to the church at Corinth, Paul writes, For our sake he, that is God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's no difference between my human nature, your human nature, and that of Jesus. He was he is truly man. The point of Paul's in the likeness of sinful flesh lies elsewhere. It is instead a reaffirmation of the divinity of Christ. 
The divine did not become human. Rather, the human was assumed into the divine. But God's action including more than just sending his son, more than pronouncing a sentence on his son. It also included the execution of that sentence. The matter was not settled with the banging of the gavel, but with the glove of the executioner, the Roman cohort. Here again the result clause from our text. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. As we walk this Lenten season, as we walk toward the fulfillment on a hill outside of the city, we sing. Thou hast suffered great affliction and hast borne it patiently. Even death by crucifixion fully to atone for me. Thou didst choose to be tormented that my doom should be prevented. For me, for you, the full requirements of the law was fulfilled in Christ. God's gavel bangs down again. Your debt is stamped, paid in full. You are forgiven. Thousand, thousand thanks to shall be, dearest Jesus, unto thee. Therefore now, what? What is Paul so excited about in chapter 8? In a word, spirit. The spirit of life, the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ. 21 times in this chapter, we encounter pneuma, spirit, more than any other chapter in the entire Bible. You were dead. You were made alive by the Holy Spirit. Yet the Holy Spirit remains the most misunderstood person of the Trinity. Martin Franzman suggests we need to recall what a mighty and creative power the spirit in the language of the Bible is, close quote. He's active in creation, Genesis 1, mighty in the deeds of the judges, anointing kings and guiding the nation. The Spirit places the very word of God in the mouth of the prophets. He's active in and with the Messiah, Yahweh's servant, calling the nation back to faith. The Spirit is active in the recreation of God's people in baptism. Active in Jesus' incarnation, baptism, temptation, all of Jesus' mighty works. Active in the apostolate as the fledgling church stretches out to the ends of the earth. Franzman concludes, Everywhere where man's possibilities are at an end, and the free and sovereign creative power of God begin, we find the presence and working of the Spirit of God. As our text declares, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free. The law of the Spirit Now, that's an interesting turn of phrase by which Paul would point to the true sense, the true purpose of the law, the Torah, that we may know God's instructions, his design, his purpose for creation. This is the authority and constraint that the Spirit exercises over the baptized, the people whom he indwells. Notice also that Paul writes, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free. The second person singular, you, catches us off guard. 
By it, Paul speaks to every individual member of the church in Rome, and indeed the church here in Tillamook. Collectively, we confessed, yet individually, particularly, the Spirit pronounces the absolution. You, Marilyn. You, Gary. You, Lee. You, Jane, are forgiven. The power of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in a sense is delivered by the spirit of life and has set you free, eternally free. Life in Lent, this rather long season, is the same today as it was in Paul's day. It is life in the spirit. It's a little like that Volkswagen Super Bowl commercial of a number of years ago. Do you remember that? The little boy dressed up like Darth Vader. He goes around the house attempting to use the force on various objects. The dryer, the dog, his sister's doll. No luck. He stands dejected in the kitchen with the helmet under his arm, looking out the window. Then Dad dries up and parks the new Volkswagen Jetta in the driveway. Darth runs out as his father comes in. He gets the helmet secured into place. He raises his arm and points them at the Volkswagen, dramatically at the car, and the yellow turn signal lights blink, and the car starts up. <laughs> Young Darth staggers backwards, and Dad winks from the kitchen window, remote in hand. It's a playful illustration of a fundamental truth about the spirit. By ourselves, we are just like that child, powerless. Without the intervention of the Spirit, we can do nothing in the spiritual realm. Like the dry bones lying in the valley, like Lazarus lying in his tomb, we are dead, really dead. But with the Spirit, who is ours in baptism, ours through the Word, as Paul writes, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Then Paul's glorious conclusion, resurrection. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Christ is risen, and his resurrection is the seal and guarantee, the pledge of yours. Dead, then alive for Lazarus, for the whole house of Israel, for you and for me. As Chrysostom wrote, we must first die and be buried, and then we shall become immortal. This has already been done in baptism. The man who is dead to this life is thus the one who is most truly alive. Close quote. Alive because the spirit of life gives us life in Christ. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen. We confess that faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed on page 159. Would you please stand?